Jonah chapter 2. We are looking at this little book of Jonah after more than a year in the Gospel of Luke. We, we were spending four weeks in these four chapters of Jonah, and we're looking at it from a little different angle than is usual. Rather than focusing on the whale swallowing Jonah and the great fish and the great storyline there, we, we're really focusing on the great God of Jonah, the great God we just sang about in Jonah. We walked through the first chapter last week, and, and here's what we learned. We learned that Jonah was one of the sons of the prophets. He was a student, so to speak, of Elijah, Elisha, and their lot. We learned that he was being deployed to a city called Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, and we learned that rather than going where he was sent by his God, he went in exactly the opposite direction. And the reason he went in the exact opposite direction was that Assyria was the empire of the day, and they had their sights set on Israel. They were coming for Israel. They would conquer Israel. They would deport the Jews from Israel. So Jonah knew that if if he goes to Nineveh, and Nineveh is spared the judgment of God because of his preaching, he will always be known as the traitor prophet. Little did he know at this time he would always be known as the prophet who was swallowed by a whale. But he didn't know that at this time. He would always be known as the traitor prophet. So Jonah puts his country before God's kingdom. He puts his role as a patriot above his role as a prophet, and he runs. But God is not frustrated. God sends a powerful storm that causes the sailors to interrogate Jonah in a panic and then in desperation throw him into the sea in order to save the ship and their lives. And we left Jonah sinking and hopeless last week until right at the last moment. The whale saved the day. The whale wasn't judgment. The whale was salvation. He saved the day. And now we come to Jonah chapter 2 and there's a stark shift between Jonah 1 and Jonah 2. I mean, if you noticed last week, it felt like we were running a marathon almost. Like Jonah gets a word from the Lord. Jonah runs onto a ship. He's heading to Tarshish. A storm comes. The sailors cast lots. They're throwing the cargo overboard. They're fighting to get to the land. They throw Jonah into the ocean. Jonah's sinking. Jonah's dying. A whale swallows Jonah. And now we come to Jonah chapter 2, and it's just like we hit the pause button. We move from action to where everything slows. And this poem that we come to in Jonah chapter 2, it kind of has the effect of just suspending the action. And it makes you think of Jonah suspended in the sea. It has the effect of just bringing some quiet and some stillness to this little book. And it makes you think of the quiet and the stillness and the darkness of that fish that was now Jonah's new address for a few days. So you see, you're going to see this slowness. It'll pick back up next week, have no fear. It'll pick back up in chapter 3 and 4, but we just, we just suspend the action here for a moment to hear what's going on in Jonah's mind as he's in the belly of this fish. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God 
from the stomach of the fish. That seems common sense, doesn't it? Not much else he can do. So he just prays to God. And what do you pray in a situation like that? What do you say in a situation like that? I want to propose to you that what Jonah prayed was not really his own words entirely. But I think what Jonah prayed in the belly of that well were really songs that he had sung his whole Jewish life. You ever been in those points in time where you just really can't pray, and then what do you wind up doing? You just don't know what to say to God, and you just, and you just stop and say, Oh, Lord, my God. When I in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds your hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. I pyre throughout the universe display. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Or, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, oh, my Savior, don't leave me. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above you, heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. You see, the the songs of our faith are rooted deep in our souls. And when we get to the point where we have no words, what comes out are those songs of our faith, those hymns of our faith that have been stored in our heart through week after week after week and month after month after month of singing them and hearing them and memorizing them, even though we didn't know them memorized. And I want to propose to you that Jonah is in the belly of that fish and what he prays are the songs. You know, the Jewish hymn book was the book of Psalms, right? And I want you to listen to Psalm 69. Just some excerpts from Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, and verses 14 and 15. Listen, listen carefully to what the psalmist writes. And then as we read on in the Jonah chapter 2, I think you're going to pick up some of this. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. Verse 14 and 15, Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Psalm 18, 4 through 6, The cords of death encompassed me and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried to my God for help. My, he heard my voice out of His temple and my cry for help before Him came into His ears. I think you're going to hear some of these songs come out in the belly of the whale. Verse 2 says, I called out of my distress to the Lord and He answered me. And listen to what He says, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. We just heard that in the Psalms. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Sheol generally refers to a place of divine judgment or a curse often wished upon the enemies of Israel. It's probably likely that the Jews have been praying Sheol for Assyria. Sheol for Nineveh. 
Some type of divine punishment, some type of curse, and it's very rude and unwelcome faith. God, we're praying, shield for Nineveh. Little did Jonah know he was going to get it. And this is where Jonah is emotionally. I am in the depth of Sheol. But the end of verse 2 says, you heard my voice. Jonah is an emotional basket case. He is in the pit and he is in Sheol. And he says, God, you hear my voice. And maybe this morning, just free of charge as a side note, you walked into this room and you feel like you are an emotional basket case. You are at the end of your rope. You are at the bottom of your pit. You can't take any more. You can't handle any more. You have had it up to here. There is nowhere to go from here but up. You feel like you are in the depths of Sheol. I want you to know God can hear you from the depths of Sheol. You don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't have to get your life all in order. You don't have to pay some kind of penance to God to get Him to hear you. You just need to repent of your sin and throw yourself on His grace and mercy and call upon His name. If He can hear Jonah from the belly of the whale, He can hear you from whatever belly of crisis you might find yourself in this morning. Verse 3, He says, you, For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. You have cast me into the deep. Now there's some options here. Jonah could have said, man, of all the boats to pick. Of all the days to set sail. Why can't I just wait until tomorrow? Who would have known that there was a storm brewing? If I would have just waited to tomorrow, if I would have just picked a different boat, a different crew, you know, what are the chances those guys cast lots? Come on. Talk about an unlucky day. That's one way Jonah could have looked at this. A series of very unfortunate events. Or he could have looked at it as like, well, you know, I got myself into this mess. I deserve it. Here I am. I guess I'll just rot in the belly of the whale. I mean, I ran, I jumped on the boat, I slept on the boat, they threw me over the boat, fish swallowed me. What did I expect? Get what you deserve, right? But Jonah didn't see it that way. Jonah didn't see it as in a series of unfortunate coincidences and events. He didn't see it as, well, this is just punishment for me and I deserve it. He says, you, God, cast me into the sea. It wasn't the, sol- the, the sailors that picked me up and threw me overboard. It was you, God. You threw me in. And then in verse 4, he goes on and says, So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. He was initially concerned with being cast down in verse 3. You've cast me into the deep. Now in verse 4, he's concerned with being cast out from God's presence. I've been expelled from your sight. Now let's just stop here and let's just, let's just step aside for a moment. Jonah says, I've been expelled from your sight. We know what it means to be expelled from school, right? You get expelled from school, you get kicked out for the year. Anybody here been expelled? You just want to confess that sin? Raise your hand high if you've been expelled from school sometime in your life. Really? Both of you? I'm seeing you after the service. I want to hear the story. I was not expect. Do not leave until I hear what happened. Wow, I'm not talking about suspended. Expelled. Okay? 
There's also something called playing hooky, right? You skip school. How many of you skipped school one time? Oh, we all, yeah. <laughs> and some liars in the balcony up there, but we'll talk to them after the service too. We all skip school. We know there's a difference in being expelled and playing hooky. And I'm just remembering back to chapter 1. It seems to me Jonah played hooky. He's blaming God for expelling him, and Jonah's the one playing hooky here. In verse 1, we read, I'm going down to Tarshish to get away from the presence of the Lord. And he's like, oh, God's cast me out of his sight. But look at the end of verse 4. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Man, that's some faith. You're in the belly of a, of a whale. I imagine you can hear it gurgling and growling, and you're about to get digested. And nevertheless, I will again look towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. Exact same word that psalm used. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains, which at this time they didn't know they were mountains at the bottom of the sea, by the way. God knew. I guess he put them there so he can inspire these words. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah's waywardness and rebellion have brought him low. Jonah believes that God's faithfulness will raise him up. Jonah has fled from the Lord. He's gotten on this boat to go the opposite direction from where God had sent him and commanded him to go. He's ended up in the ocean. He's ended up in the belly of the well, yet he believes that he's going to look at that temple again. He believes that though he is at the bottom of the bottom, the emotional basket case, surrounded by Sheol, that God is going to bring him up because he knew that God did not pull out his switch and just swing it like a haphazard father. You've seen the parents, and I'm one sometimes. You know, you just swing the switch because to make you feel better. <laughs> and you all laugh because you're guilty. <clears throat> God is not that father that swings the switch to make himself feel better. God swings the switch intentionally, purposefully, and not for punishment towards his children, but to restore his children and to discipline his children. Jonah knows that shipwreck, that cast into the ocean, that whale swallow me, it's not God spanking me out of anger and condemnation. It's God correcting me to get me back in line. And some of you, you feel like God is out to get you. And he is. If you are lost here and you are not born again, your life has not been transformed by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ to make you a new creation, He's out to get you. One, He's going to get you by bringing you into the family of God, maybe today. Or He's going to get you as He stands before, as you stand before His judgment seat. And He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And if you're a Christian here today, if you're a believer here today, and you have been transformed by His power and grace, and you just feel like God's out to get you at every turn, let me tell you, it is not to punish. It is never to condemn. Those who are in Christ Jesus have no condemnation. 
You will not be punished. You will not be condemned. God doesn't punish His children. The punishment has been taken on the cross by Jesus, paid in full. There's nothing left to punish. So don't come in here if you are a true believer with your head hung down like God's out to get you in a negative way to punish you and to condemn you. That's not even on the radar. Your punishment and condemnation has been taken in full in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer and it seems as though God's out to get you, He's just getting you in line. I mean, what kind of parent is going to let their child play on the edge of the Grand Canyon where there's no railing? You're going to snatch that kid, pull his shoulder out of socket. doesn't matter. That's better than falling off into the Grand Canyon, right? And sometimes God will snatch our shoulder out of socket to keep us from falling off the Grand Canyon, and that is not punishment and condemnation. That is love. Deep love. Restorative love. Hebrews 12 tells us in verses 6 and 11, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. So if you think you're a Christian and you're living neck deep in sin and you're not catching it, red flag, alert. If you're a Christian and you're living in sin, hidden sin, secret sin, whatever kind of sin, and you're not catching it from the Lord, red flag, because he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as, his, as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God doesn't condemn us and punish us. God disciplines us as a loving father, which another side note that is free of charge is, if you are a loving father, you will discipline your kids. Well, you know, we just don't believe in that kind of punishment. We want to build them up. Well, you build them right on up. They're hard enough to keep in control with discipline, amen? And the Bible says, he who spares the rod hates his son. So you don't discipline your child. You don't love your child. It says that in Proverbs, it says it in Hebrews right here. The one that the father loves will be disciplined. Jonah's getting him a dose of it right now. I mean, I've never been swallowed by a whale yet, have you? I mean, a guy got it a couple of Three weeks ago, did you read about that in the paper? Yeah, actually swallowed. Y'all hadn't read about the guy getting swallowed by the whale? Didn't keep him in three days and three nights. It spit him out pretty quick. He was thankful. I'm not, this is not a joke. A guy really did get swallowed by a whale a few weeks ago and spit out pretty quickly thereafter. I don't know if he was under the discipline of the Lord or not. But it hasn't happened to me yet. Haven't been tossed overboard, but the Lord disciplines us in His own way, doesn't He? Jonah says in verse 7, while I was fainting away, that word fainting away could be translated when my life was ebbing away. In other words, I'm about to go here. I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. 
I'm hearing the, the soft angelic voices calling me home. Literally in Hebrew, it, it implies that Jonah's spirit and his soul were curling in on itself. He's, he's curling up now. And Jonah's about ready to lose hope. But while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. Now listen to what he says. That which I have vowed I will pay. It's as if he's sinking into the bottom of the ocean. His life is curling up. His life is slipping out of him. And something hits his memory. He had vowed to pay something. God, I will pay it. You are faithful. Well, swallows him. Okay, get another chance here. What was it that he had vowed? I don't know. Doesn't tell us. Maybe one day he had sat in his office and he said, God, I want to write you a blank check with my life. I'll just let you fill in the amount. And I'm going to write you a blank check with my life, God. And God said, oh, okay. Thanks, John, that's good. And sometime later he says, okay, okay, Jonah, blank check, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, that check's going to bounce. I'm fixing to get out of here. And God says, no, you're not. Don't you make a vow to the Lord that you don't mean to keep, buddy. I'll get you. And he got him. And right before Jonah's breath leaves his body for good, he says, I remember. Blank check. Whatever it was that he vowed to the Lord, okay, God, I remember now. I need to follow through. After all, what does verse, the latter part of verse seven, uh, verse number nine say? Salvation is from the Lord. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Right? It's just, just like that. Okay. Jonah gets the message, and the fish throws him up on dry land, and he's taken from the pit, and his feet are set on a rock. And I would imagine, once he cleared his head, he was singing a new song. Psalm 40, verse 2, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet up on a rock, making my footsteps firm. And now that Jonah has seen the salvation of the Lord up close and personal, he's ready for the word of the Lord to come to him a second time in chapter 3 and verse number 1. And now remember, the purpose of our study is not to learn about a pouting prophet or a great fish, but it's to learn about a great God. Let's review what we've seen in Jonah so far. We're going to just keep building these, all right? And I'm going to be fast because we saw them last week. Number one, God is omnipresent. In Jonah chapter 1, in verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah knew, we know, the Bible tells us that God, you can't get away from God's presence. No matter how high you go, no matter how low you go, no matter how deep you go into the earth's recesses, no matter how dark the room is, you can't hide from God. God is omnipresent. All of God is everywhere. It's not part of God fills one place and part of God fills another place, but all of God fills all of heaven and all of God fills all of earth all the time. Think about that for a minute. All of God is right here. Stephen Charnock called God the soul of the world. 
He said, as the soul is in every part of the body to quicken it, so is God in every part of the world to support it. God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. In verse number 4 of Jonah chapter 1, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. God said, Jonah, you think you're going to run from me, but I can stop you just like that. So he hurls a great storm at the great ship until the great ship was just about to break up. And think about this. God hurled the storm at just the right time in just the right place, and he put just enough pressure on that ship that they all thought it was going to break apart, but it didn't break apart. That's how precise God's power is. Can God do anything? Can God do all things? Yes, He can do all His holy will. There is nothing that God wills to do that is too large or too small for Him to do in a fraction of a millisecond should He choose. He's omnipotent. He is creator. Jonah 1.9, He said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. God created all things in six days with the word of His mouth. He spoke and it was, and because He spoke and it was, it still is, because He, the Creator God, holds it all together. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And the minute He turns it loose, it'll come apart. God is righteous and just, number four. In chapter 1 and verse 14, they called on the Lord. These are the pagan sailors who've been crying out to their gods. They call on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Yahweh, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you please. In other words, we recognize that you are a righteous, perfect, holy God. And because you are righteous and perfect and holy, you are just. And we know that you will not overlook sin. We're about to throw this guy into the ocean, God. Please, righteous and just God, realize this is your doing, not ours. Don't punish us for this. He is righteous and He is just. And we talked about last week. I'm tempted to do it again, but I'm just going to refrain. We talked about last week the problem that you can't justify the wicked or condemn the righteous without being an abomination to God. That's how righteous and just God is. And yet in His wisdom, in His wisdom, He was able to forgive us and to make us righteous legally through His Son, Jesus Christ. Number five, God is sovereign. Chapter 1 and verse 7, each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on, surprise, Jonah. How did those lots fall on Jonah? Because the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Sovereign. Chapter 1 and verse 17, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. That fish was swimming along, and God said, We're fixing to put in some new GPS coordinates for you, buddy. You better get over here by this boat, because they're fixing to throw my man out. I want you to swallow him. You remember Jesus told Peter when he needed some tax money, Go out there, throw your hook in the lake. First fish you catch, open his mouth, pull the money out. I bet you Peter took that money put it in his pocket. I'm going to try that again. I'm going to do that again. <laughs> God is sovereign over creation. He exercises rule over His creation. And now we come into chapter 2, and look what happens in verse 3. You have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. God was in control of Jonah being cast overboard. 
In verse number 10 of chapter 2, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God had sent the fish over there at just the right time to swallow Jonah and at just the right time, God said, spit him out. God is sovereign. He works and accomplishes and brings about all things according to His perfect will. No event in creation falls outside of our God's providence. He's not up there going, oops, ah, I didn't see that. How am I going to fix this mess they've made? No. God is in control. He is unshaken. He is unmovable. Nothing happens outside of His jurisdiction. Even Jonah getting tossed overboard. All of our actions are under God's providential, wise, good care. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Listen to this quote by Sinclair Ferguson as we think about the sovereignty of God and how relieving it is that God's in control and you not. Few principles are more important in the Christian life than the practical recognition of the sovereign God and His gracious determination to draw us near to Himself, whatever the cost may be. When His purposes involve afflictions and sufferings of any kind, the knowledge that He is sovereignly overruling is the only thing that can preserve us from a craven fear or a sense of despair and bring us a measure of joyful and willing acceptance of our situation. Only when we recognize that God's aim is to make us like Christ and that He works all the events of our lives together for this purpose will we begin to rejoice in the good that is produced out of tribulation. That's why we must believe that our God is sovereign or we will despair in days like these. Number six, God is saving. In verse number six, it says, You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Who did it? God brought up His life from the pit. In verse nine, salvation is from who? The Lord. It is God who saves. Think about the lengths that he went to to save those sailors. You know, they're just, they're just minor characters in the story. But you think about this. Those pagan sailors got on that boat that day absolutely oblivious to the fact that Jonah was getting on there running from God. Oblivious to the fact that they were about to catch a storm like they haven't caught before. Remember they feared a great fear last week? Oblivious to what was about to happen. They are on their knees in this storm praying to all their false gods... They're idols. And by the end of chapter 1, they're calling on Yahweh. They're calling on Jonah's God. Think about what God did for these. He took a wayward prophet and said, All right, I'm going to put you on this boat, send you to Tarshish. We're going to scare these guys half to death. I'm going to get their attention. You're going to point them to me, even though you really don't mean to, and they're going to worship me before you get off that boat. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And then think about the lengths God went to to save Jonah. You know what I'd have done? I said, all right, sucker, you want to run? I'll tell you what. You're fixing to sink to the bottom of that ocean. Prophet Bill, I need you to go to Nineveh. But God didn't say, all right, Jonah, I'll use Prophet Fred over here. Think about what God does. He, he, he says, get on the ship, big boy. I'm going to send a storm, and I'm going to rock that boat, 
to the point that they pin you as the problem and I'm going to have them throw you overboard and you're going to sink and as you sink I'm going to send a whale and I'm going to swallow you with that whale and I'm going to save your life and I'm going to spit you out on land and I'm going to give you another chance. That's crazy. Is it not? Like who would God do that for besides Jonah? I mean, Isaiah 43, I bet Jonah can relate Isaiah 43, 1 to 3, But now thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jonah passed through that water, and that well swallowed Jonah. And God saved Jonah. And then think about the lengths he went to to save Nineveh. Wicked, ungodly Nineveh. You're going through all this trouble for that bunch, Lord? Not getting away, Jonah. Not today. You've got to go to Nineveh. I'll save some sailors on the way. I'll save you on the way. And I need you to go to Nineveh so that I can save Nineveh. It's like God is unstoppable. And we read these things and we think, how crazy that God would do all of this to save somebody. I want you to think about this. For those of you that are waiting on a whale to swallow you to prove to you that God wants to save you this morning, I just want you to follow me. God tells Jonah, go, I need you to save Nineveh. And Jonah runs the other way. But in eternity past, God the Father looked at His Son, His exact image and representation, and He said, I need you to save me a people. And Jesus humbled Himself, and He took on the form of a servant. And He came to this earth, and He lived an obedient life, even to the point of death on a cross, to save. Jonah gets on that boat, and he lays his head down to sleep, because he is so weary from running from God. He sleeps to the storm. And yet Jesus gets on the boat and as the storm rages, He sleeps in perfect peace and perfect faith with His Father. And He just wakes up and says, Just be still. Jonah gets thrown overboard and he is facing death. He is facing death. And you know what He's doing as He's going down? He's singing the Psalms. He's singing the Psalms. And Jesus Christ went to the cross and He's facing death. And you know what He does on that cross? He sings a psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line of a Jewish hymn in the Psalms. And Jonah, at the point of death, is swallowed by a whale for three days and three nights. And Jesus swallows death. And he's put in a tomb. And Jonah, on the third day, was spit out of the well. And Jesus, on the third day, was spit out of the tomb. Death had lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. And Jesus comes out of the tomb. And Jonah Jonah goes to Nineveh. And he preaches his message. And the whole city repents and believes. And Jesus stands for 40 days in and out of the crowds 
preaching his message after his resurrection. Was seen by more than 500 brethren at one time. And many, many multitudes have been saved. No, God's not going to throw you overboard. And God's not going to swallow you by a whale. And God's not going to spit you out somewhere on dry land to prove his love to you. He's going to come and be thrown overboard for you. And he's going to face death for you. And he's going to be swallowed by the grave for you. And he's going to be spit out of the grave for you. He's going to preach his message to you so that if you repent and put your faith and your trust in him, you can avoid the grave. You can avoid death. You can avoid hell. You can avoid the judgment of God. And you can reign with him forevermore. Is that not good news? Would you bow with me? God, we thank you for this wayward, pouting prophet. But more so than that, we thank you, God, that you use a wayward, pouting prophet to show us the picture of your great love with which you loved us. God, there may be somebody here this morning who's sinking in the pit of despair. And they feel that Sheol has its arms wrapped around them. I pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness and the faith to call upon your name. To turn from their sins, to put their faith and their trust in you. And to find hope and new life. Not because of who they are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done for them. We praise your name for who you are and how you work in our lives. And how you work in our midst. Oh, omnipresent, omnipotent, creator, just and righteous, sovereign, saving God. And it's in your name we pray and ask these things. Amen.